every uh, spring, the Jewish people celebrate a festival called Purim. Children dress up in costumes, special food is served, gifts are exchanged, thanks is given to God. And the celebration is a way of commemorating the events of the book of Esther. In fact, the very name of the festival, Purim, comes from the word pur, which were the lots or the dice that were used in the book of Esther to determine the date of the annihilation of the Jewish people. One of the traditions of this festival is that the book of Esther is read in the synagogue, and as the rabbi reads the book, every time Haman's name is mentioned, the people boo, hiss, and stomp their feet. Well, this year, Purim was celebrated on Wednesday and Thursday of this past week. And I thought this morning that in honor of the festival of Purim, every time I read Haman's name in the passage uh, that we're going to look at today, I'd like for you to boo, hiss, and stomp your feet. Can you do that? Yeah, can you do that? All right, now here's the thing. I don't want you to do that when I'm just saying his name, all right? But when I read his name from the Bible, I want you to boo, hiss, and stomp your feet, all right? So let's just pretend. Now, I'm just talking along, and I just said his name. What do you do? Nothing. No, 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 no. If I just say his name, you do nothing. Let's try that again. So if I just say his name, what do you do? Good. Now, if I'm, happen- if I'm reading along and I read the name Haman, what do you do? Boom. That's perfect. You got it. That's, that's excellent, okay? Well, if you're new to City Church, you might have guessed that we're in a series from the book of Esther called Wonder Woman. Actually, we're going to wrap up the series today. If you're interested in going back and hearing some of the other sermons in the series, you can do so on our City Church app. Uh, You can download that from the App Store. Just search City Church of Evansville. The rest of you, if you would, turn in your Bibles to Esther chapter 7 in the Old Testament. Esther chapter 7 in the Old Testament. And just a quick review. The king of Persia, Xerxes, is married to a Jewish woman named Esther. Only he doesn't know that she's Jewish. He thinks she's Persian. Nor does his prime minister, Haman. We don't say anything there. Okay. Nor does his prime minister, Haman, who has planned a coming annihilation of the Jewish people in Persia, of which the king is unaware. And the impetus for Haman's evil is his nemesis, a man named Mordecai, who is the queen's uncle, whom Haman hates with a uniquely savage, racist hatred. So much so that he had a gallows built upon which he wants to have Mordecai impaled. When we pick up the story in chapter 7, Haman has had a terrible day. He had to honor Mordecai, his nemesis, in front of the whole city by order of the king. And when we open chapter 7, he's been whisked away to the second of two private banquets that the queen, Esther, has held for the king and Haman. She plans on, at this second banquet, begging the king for the mercy of her people, the Jewish people. All right, look at chapter 7, verse 1. So the king and Haman went to dine with Queen Esther. And as they were drinking wine on that second day, the king asked, Queen Esther, what is your petition? Whatever it is, it will be given to you. What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be granted. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor with you, O king, 
And if it pleases your majesty, grant me my life, this is my petition, and spare my people. This is my request. For I and my people have been sold for destruction and slaughter and annihilation. Now that sound that you just heard is the sound of Haman's jaw hitting the floor. Because he had no idea until now that the queen belonged to the very race of people that he has planned to annihilate. Now, remember too, his wife has just told him. We saw this last week in chapter 6. She just told him that very day. She said, since Mordecai, before whom your downfall has started, is of Jewish origin, you cannot stand against him. You will surely come to ruin. And then to drive home the final nail, he's found out that the queen is Jewish as well. This is a bad day for this man. Even the king must have been speechless for a moment because, as I said earlier, he didn't know the nationality of Esther either. He just thought he was coming to a nice private little banquet where his queen wanted to make some meek, cute little petition. But now the revelation has struck home that even his own wife's life is on the line. She's not even safe in his kingdom. And by the way, did you notice in this passage that she didn't press the fact that he, King Xerxes, is the very one who had sold the Jewish people to Haman? She didn't say anything about that. Very strategic of her, isn't it? All right, look at verse 5. King Xerxes asked Queen Esther, who is he? Where is the man who has dared to do such a thing? Now, here's what I want to do. I want to set you up so that you can really understand exactly what Haman is feeling at this very moment, that the queen is here, and the king has asked, who is the man, which of course is Haman, who is the man that has done this, dared to do this vile thing. I think anyone can understand this to some extent, but I think parents will uniquely get how Haman is feeling, and and here's why. There comes a time in every little child's life when they start repeating things that they've heard mommy or daddy say, including the things that daddy and mommy have said in their worst moments. You know, someone cuts you off in traffic, Or you spill grape juice on your favorite blouse, and in a moment of frustration, you blurt something out in front of your child. But at some point, they start saying that very thing that you've blurted out. They don't know what they're saying, but they think it's funny because of the reaction that it gets out of you. No, 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 no. You you mustn't say that. But that only makes it worse. They, they, They get tickled. They start laughing and giggling, and they say it more and more and more. And then one day, you're taking your child into daycare. You say hi to the other parents who are arriving at the same time, including the mother who thinks her child is a little Einstein, but that you think is a little Frankenstein. And then the nice ladies who run the daycare miss too much energy this early in the morning and miss, I don't have children yet, but I have all the answers. (laughs) They both come and get your son, and one of them remarks to him, oh, it looks like you spilled something on your shirt. You think nothing of it at first. But then you see him, you look at him, you see him look at you, and he starts to smile, and it dawns on you what's about to happen. You see his lips starting to form. You reach for him, and your lips form the word, no! But before you can get it out, he shouts that word that he has heard mommy, the pastor's wife, say at home. You know that feeling? That's what Haman is feeling in this very moment. No! No! 
trouble, but sure enough, verse 6, Esther said, the adversary and enemy is this vile Haman. (laughs) Then Haman was terrified before the king and queen. Yeah, he was. Of course he was terrified. Now remember, the king has an anger problem. He's flown off at the handle numerous times in this book, and Haman knows all too well that it never turns out well for the person that he is angry at. The king got up in a rage, the text says, left his wine. I think that's funny that it has to include that, that he left his wine. Like, if he ever leaves his wine, that's a big deal, we have to say that. The king got up in a rage, left his wine, and he went out into the palace garden. But Haman realizing that the king had already decided his fate, stayed behind to beg Queen Esther for his life. Now, for those of you who are keeping track, I want you to just note again the incredible irony in all of this. The the author of this book, you remember, went to great lengths in the beginning of this book to describe the sexist, misogynistic culture in which women were oppressed and, and kept in their place. But oh, how things have changed now. Here is Haman begging a woman for his life. But watch this, verse 8. Just as the king returned from the palace garden to the banquet hall, Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was reclining. The king exclaimed, will he even molest the queen while she is with me in the house? Not only is he begging a woman for his life, but this woman, excuse me, this guy, Haman, who got so angry that a Jewish man wouldn't bow down to him, is now on his knees before a Jewish woman begging for his life. Oh, how delicious this irony is. And oh, what a difference a day makes. Just 24 hours ago, this man couldn't think of one single single other person in the entire kingdom of Persia that the king would want to honor except him. And now the bottom has fallen out from underneath his life. And he's wishing he could be anywhere but here. And that, my friends, is what a fall from grace looks like. And as if if that's not enough, here's the ultimate irony. Continuing in verse 8. As soon as the word left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. You guys are really lacking on energy now at this point, right? (laughs) started out with a lot of gusto, but now it's not so good. As soon as the word left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs attending the king, said, a gallows 75 feet high stands by Haman's house. He had it made for Mordecai, who spoke up to help the king. The king said, hang him on it. A better translation, by the way, is impaled. So they hanged or impaled Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. And then the king's fury subsided. Is this the most delicious thing that you have ever read in your life? Haman gets everything that he had planned for Mordecai, including and starting with this gallow. And I would just ask you, does God have a sense of humor or what? Now, I want you to follow me through the highlights of the next few chapters. If we had time, we'd go through all of these, but we don't. So we're just going to kind of fly through the highlights of the next few chapters. I want you to see what happens. Chapter 8, verse 1. That same day, King Xerxes gave Queen Esther the estate of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. Esther then 
turns around, she gives that to Mor- the, the estate to Mordecai. In the intervening verses, Esther asks for a reversal of the edict to annihilate the Jewish people. Now, the problem is that according to the laws of Persia, that can't happen. You can't reverse an edict that the king has made. But the king allows Esther to send out another edict that gave the Jewish people a right to mount a defense against anyone who tried to kill them. And just just in the same way that the news about this coming genocide of the Jewish people had been carried to every corner of Persia, so this news, that they had the right to fight, to mount a defense, this news was carried to every corner of Persia. Verse 16 says, For the Jews... It was a time of happiness and joy, gladness and honor. In every province and in every city, wherever the edict of the king went, there was joy and gladness among the Jews with feasting and celebrating. In chapter 9, the Jewish people rout all of the people who attacked them. They initiate the Feast of Purim, which we talked about just a little while ago. And then the book of Esther ends with this line. Mordecai the Jew was set, okay, remember, by the way, remember, you remember how Haman referred to Mordecai, like when, he, when we first discovered this hatred that he had for him, remember how he called, he called him, it was derogatory, it was racist, he called him Mordecai the Jew, here's the irony, Mordecai the Jew was now second in rank to King Xerxes, preeminent among the Jews and held in high esteem by his many fellow Jews, because he worked for the good of his people and he spoke up for the welfare of all the Jews. And so not only did Haman get everything he planned for Mordecai, Mordecai got everything Haman planned for himself. That is irony. You know, just a few short chapters ago, you and I would have said that the Jewish people are as good as dead. Things seemed, things seemed hopeless for them. They, they, were, they were powerless, and, and that's how they felt too. And from a human perspective, the, the only hope that the Jewish people had was the queen, a lonely, excuse me, a lowly woman in a sexist, misogynistic culture. But in the end, it is the courage and the bravery and faith of this woman in a man's world who rescued her people. And because of her, their mourning has turned into dancing and their sadness has turned into gladness. These Jewish people, who were once as good as dead, are now alive. By the way, does any of that sound familiar to you? Someone who's dead and is now alive? Does that sound familiar? As we leave this book, as we close this series... I want to leave you with a few thoughts that I think each of us here and and each person listening to this podcast would do very well to stop whatever you're doing, cancel whatever plans you have for the rest of the day, and just consider. And I want to start with this particular point, which really is a, a review of something we've seen throughout this book. And it's this. God is actively involved in the storyline of your life, even when it doesn't seem like it. God is 
actively involved in the storyline of your life, even when it doesn't seem like it. I told you all through this book that God's name is never mentioned in this book. There are no conspicuous miracles that ever happen in this book. And yet here at the end, we recognize, don't we, that this book is all, it's all one big but inconspicuous miracle in which God's providence has overruled the plans of the enemy of God and the enemy of God's people in the person of Haman. It's overruled all of them. And you see, this morning, part of your problem, if you're in some kind of crisis right now, if you're facing some kind of crisis and you find yourself discouraged, part of the reason that you're discouraged right now is that you're only looking for God in the most conspicuous of places and ways. But I want you to think about this. In this book, God was always working. It was just in ways and places that you would have never thought to look. He worked through sexism. Who knew that God could work through sexism? He worked through egos. He worked through rage. He worked through insomnia. He worked through obsessiveness. He worked through governmental incompetence. He worked through lust, racism, and hatred, just to name a few things that he worked through. Who knew that he could do that? He was all over the storyline of this book. And understand this, my friends. He is all over your story, too, all over it, all up and in it, even though it may not seem like it to you. Now, look, I can't promise that the crisis you are in today is going to turn out the way that this crisis did. That's not the point of this book. I can't promise that you will be healed of your illness. I can't promise that you're going to get the job that that you want to get. I, I can't promise that your husband or wife will return to your marriage. I can't promise that your son or your daughter will ultimately believe in Christ. If I could make those promises, if that was a legitimate application of this book, believe me, I would, but I can't. All I can promise you is that God is all over your crisis today, working in this very moment, in ways and places you would never dream to look, to bring about his good plan for your life. And whatever plan the enemy has for your life has been overruled if you are a believer in Christ. And God's plan for your life will happen through the same providence with which he rescued the people of God in the book of Esther. That I can promise you. God is actively involved in the storyline of your life, even if it doesn't seem like it. Here's the second point I want to leave you with this morning. The book of Esther reminds us that God is faithful to his promises. The book of Esther reminds us that God is faithful to his promises. You you have to read the book of Esther in the context of, of the rest of the Bible, and especially the entire Old Testament. Way back in the book of Genesis, God made a promise to a man by the name of Abraham and to all of his descendants that he would bless anyone who blesses them and curse anyone who curses them. Let me ask you, was he faithful to that in this book? Was he faithful to that in this book? Yes, he was. Of course he was. Later in the Old Testament, God makes another promise to his people, and that includes you and me. It's found in Jeremiah chapter 31, and it goes like this. It says, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each of his brothers, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive 
their iniquity. And I will remember their sin no more. This is a promise from God to forgive the sins of his people. And what does God have to do to pull off that promise? In the book of Esther, he had to do all of these other, you know, work through sexism and rage and lust and obsessiveness and racism and all of those things. What does he have to do to pull off that promise to forgive the sins of his people? Well, he has to be born into the world by a virgin. He has to take on human flesh. He has to endure the rejection of the religious leaders of Israel. He has to come under the sword of the Roman Empire. He has to be crucified on a Roman cross. He has to be dead in the ground for three days. And he has to be resurrected from the dead. All of that to be faithful to his promise there in Jeremiah 31. You think, after all of that, that your sin can't be forgiven? You say, well, Jeff, you don't know what I've done. And of course, no, I I don't. But God made a promise. And there are no qualifiers to his promise in Jeremiah 31. The only qualifier is this, that the forgiveness comes through his son, Jesus Christ. And if you believe in him, you will be given eternal life. Most famous verse in all of the Bible, John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Now notice that the basis of that promise is his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, not your performance, not on your ability to to keep the law, not on your ability to be a good person, but it is on the basis, that promise is on the basis of Jesus' life and death on the cross. And so tonight, and so tonight, if you find yourself by by some sudden change of fortune on death's doorstep, You can have peace knowing that God is faithful and that when you close your eyes on this side of eternity, you will open your eyes on the other side of eternity and see the outstretched arms of your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, because God is faithful to his promises. He is faithful to his promise. He is faithful to his promise to forgive you if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and that you can have eternal life. And he's faithful to that promise too. But there's another promise that some of you here, some of you listening today need to know about. God also makes a promise in numerous places in the Bible regarding people who have never believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. And here's one of those promises. Comes from 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9. It says, They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. It's not a promise that you often hear about in churches today very much, is it? Part of the reason for that is that we're afraid to. F- We're afraid to offend anyone. You know, we live in a very politically correct culture. Even pastors can be guilty of being afraid to offend people. But it hasn't always been that way. Um, Perhaps the most famous sermon ever delivered comes from way back in 1741 by a pastor and a theologian by the name of Jonathan Edwards. And I would encourage you this morning, if you have never believed in Jesus, 
to listen closely to a portion of what Jonathan Edwards says. He says this, he says, this that you have heard about the fact that if you don't believe in Jesus that you will experience eternal destruction, this that you have heard is the case of every one of you that are out of Christ. There is nothing between you and hell but the air. It is only the power and mere pleasure of God that holds you up. You are probably not sensible of this. You're kept out of hell, but you don't see the hand of God in it, but instead look at other things. as the good state of your bodily constitution, your care of your own life, and the means that you use for your own preservation, but indeed, these things are nothing. If God should withdraw his hand, you would immediately sink and descend into the bottomless gulf. And your healthy constitution and your own care and prudence and best contrivance and all of your righteousness would have no more influence to uphold you and keep you out of hell than a spider's web would have to stop a falling rock. It says, the bow of God's wrath is bent and the arrow made ready on the string. And justice bends the arrow at your heart and strains the bow. And it is nothing but the mere pleasure of God that keeps the arrow one moment from being made drunk with your blood. Now, do you understand what John Edwards was saying? Frankly, it might be too direct for 21st century ears. Likely sounds mean to some of you, but it's not mean. It is sober. It is sober. But it is not mean. It is a wake-up call out of concern for your soul. And what Edwards was saying is that if you don't believe that Jesus Christ's blood was a necessary and effective payment for your sins, that if you believe that there's some other way that you can be saved other than Jesus, then you are in mortal and eternal danger at this very moment. And please, please, please realize, as Jonathan Edwards said in that sermon, that the only thing keeping you alive today, this very moment, is only the power and pleasure of God at this moment. And understand, if you're here today, if you've never believed in Jesus, you need to understand that God is all over the storyline of your life too. And the reason that you're here today isn't an accidental decision. It's not just a coincidence that you came today. The reason that you're here today is that God is all over the storyline of your life and he has directed you here today. And you are here today so that you will hear what I am saying to you right now, that you will come to your senses and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. But please understand this. God owes you nothing. And before this day is out, you may find yourself in that bottomless pit where people suffer needlessly for their sin. This whole book, the book of Esther, points us to the ultimate Esther, the Lord Jesus Christ. Esther risked her life for her people but lived. Jesus gave his life for his people and he died. Esther mediated between her people and the king. Jesus mediated between all people and God the Father. For those who believe in him, there is this same great reversal that we undergo that that Mordecai and the Jewish people underwent. 
just as their sadness turned into gladness and their mourning turned into dancing, so can yours. Just as they were surely dead, but then were, in a sense, raised from the dead, those who are spiritually dead become alive in Christ. Imperfect, undeserving people are given the very righteousness of Jesus Christ. The wrath of God on our unbelief is changed to the acceptance of God in our belief in the Lord Jesus Christ. And even, listen to me, even the Hamans of the world, when they repent, can find that forgiveness and grace in God. God is faithful to his promises. Don't leave here today thinking that you are alone in this in your crisis, whatever your crisis is, God is faithful to his promises. He is all over it right now, even though you can't see him. He's all over it. And don't leave here today wondering if God can forgive your sins. He has forgiven your sins. If you have believed in Christ. And don't leave here today without believing And the Lord Jesus Christ, he is calling you right now through my voice. He is calling you to be his, to be his. And God is always faithful to his promises. Would you please bow with me? This morning, if you have never come to a place in your life where you've made a conscious decision that you would trust in the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Maybe you thought all of your life that you couldn't possibly be forgiven for what you have done. Or maybe you've thought that maybe you've thought that you could be rescued from hell by your own righteousness all of the good things that you've done in your life let me tell you none of those things will work you need to come to a place you need to become very sober right now at this very moment if you've never believed in the Lord Jesus Christ become very sober right now and understand that out of love and concern for your soul God has spoken to you very clearly today that today is the day to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ because you don't know what this day holds for you The Bible says that God loves you so much that he died on the cross in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ for your sins. And that if you believe in him, that you will be forgiven of all of your sins, past, present, future, and that you will have eternal life. But if you count on your goodness, uh, if you count on your goodness for eternal life, you're counting on the wrong thing counting on the wrong person. The person to count on is Jesus, not you. And so this morning, would you just, in the privacy of your seat, the sense of sobriety and urgency, would you say to the Lord Jesus Christ, I am a sinner and I need a Savior and you are the only Savior that I can count on. Would you do that right now? I believe that you were crucified on the cross for my sins. I believe that was necessary 
I believe that you're the only sacrifice, the only acceptable sacrifice for my sin. And I believe that you were raised again from the dead and that you're alive today. And the Bible says that if you, if you believe in Christ, at this very moment, you undergo this enormous reversal where everything that was true of you is no longer true of you. And the things that weren't true of you are now true of you. You have everything that Jesus has ever prepared for you today. For those of you who already have believed in Jesus at some point in your life, today I want you to understand that God is faithful to your promises, to his promises, and that he is in your crisis right now. Would you affirm that to him right now privately in your seat? Lord Jesus, I believe that you are all up and in and all over my crisis, even though I can't see you. I believe it. Would you say that to him? Would you also say to him, Lord Jesus, if tonight I find myself on my, at my last breath, I will praise you even in that moment, knowing that I have the peace of God, even there, that's in Jesus Christ, that I know I have eternal life. Would you affirm that now? And Lord Jesus Christ, I pray that the power of your spirit would be moving in this room at this very moment, that you would taking these words from my uh, frail mouth and penetrate deeply into the hearts and souls of the people here today. And it's in your name, Lord Jesus, that we worship and that we pray and that we find our salvation. Amen. Amen.